You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Thanks for joining us for our study of six of the Psalms of Ascent from the Old Testament. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and get ready to open God's Word together. Hi, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be back here uh, in Rolling Meadows. It's great to have the rest of you guys joining us um, all across our campuses, across Northwest Chicago, and even out there in Aurora. Is Aurora in Northwest Chicago? Not really, Western Chicago, right? Okay, good to know that you guys are giving the great feedback and helping the new guy around. So, um, look, I want you to make sure you have your Bibles open, as John just said, here at the Rolling Meadows campus to Psalm 126. Um, Before we get into all this, though, I just wanted to add my voice for a second to two things. First of all, I just wanted to publicly express my appreciation for uh, Jeff Thompson, to be honest with you. The last two weeks, Jeff came and he preached, and he was just, did such a great, great work. I've been so thrilled with him. He's a good brother, and also the Lord's really using him in great ways, and so I'm really excited about it. You guys down at the cathedral, you have a really special dude there. Um, also, I want to just add my voice to the, the, the plea for us to be a hospitable uh, church. When we start talking about growth, it's awesome that the Lord is growing our, our campuses. We've seen our numbers this summer not really drop. Usually in the summertime, usually your attendance drops about 25%. We just not haven't seen that this year. And so we're expecting if numbers tend to hold that in this fall, we'll have quite a few more people around. And so that's why we're going to several services so that because we, we want to accommodate people. I don't want somebody driving into our parking lot saying, I can't get any parking spot. Did you know that the, one of the key reasons people go to church actually is the number one when they, when they do these evaluations or these um, polls, uh, number one, people go to the church they go to uh, largely because of the preaching and then second, because of parking, which is, oh, okay. <laughs> but the idea is that, you know, people want to have a little bit of room, especially in the Western world these days. They want to have a little bit of space and know that they're welcomed. And so, it's really a hospitable thing for us to do to make sure that we are ready for our guests and uh, those guests become people who are regulars and they become friends and brothers and sisters. And so that's why we need people to serve and use their gifts as disciples of Jesus, to be serving in our churches and to be uh, uh, having the opportunity to see God use you in some really cool cool ways. So I'm really excited about uh, the, the future and how God is using our church um, to reach people in this community, and I pray that you too will kind of lean in to all of that. Like I said, Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Um, the hardest thing that I ever dealt with with my first child was trying to get him to sleep. If you're a new parent, uh, I, I know this is usually a surprise when, when um, you have your children. I always thought the hardest thing for having new children would be other things. But the first like year of his life was like, all I wanted the kid to do is to sleep. He didn't seem very agreeable with that. It seemed like the one thing he didn't want to do was to, was to sleep. And the first few, few weeks, he was great. He didn't wake up much at all. And I was like, this is easy. And then all of a sudden he woke up and trying to get him back to sleep required a whole bunch of tricks. We bought a book, you know, because the book is, 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 you know, supposed to give you the expert advice. We bought a book and the book told us how we were supposed to get the kid to sleep. He needed to learn how to kind of, you know, get, get adjusted himself in his bedroom. He said, you need to leave him in there for a while. And so my wife and I, who are very um, attentive and embracing and welcoming parents, it was really hard for us. And so we were like, okay, we'll leave him in there. He would cry and he would cry and he would cry. And in the book it said, you know, like 10 minutes later, they'll stop crying. Well, he'd go for an hour and he was still yelling. And I was sitting on the floor of my, of my, uh, of our what they call a lounge in, in New Zealand. We were sitting on the floor and my wife was in tears and she was saying, I need to go into him. And I said, but the book says, don't go into him. Apparently Ethan hadn't read the book. And um, so she, finally she goes into him and I'm, I'm holding this book in my hand. And I'm so angry at this book because it hasn't worked. And so I took it outside and I threw it out in the backyard and then took some lighter fluid and I lit it on fire. No kidding, I did this in the... In the Backyard. Eventually, you know, you kind of have to figure out what, what works for you. When I, my second son came along, because I'd had this experience with my first son, the second son came along, 
I was not as worried as I was with the first son, but my second son, he actually presented with a new challenge. He had these things called night terrors. Have you guys ever heard of what night terrors are? It's um, your kid will wake up and they will come out and they will look like they're completely with it, right? But they are looking at you, but they're still dreaming. And they're walking around and acting. If you ask them the next day, do you remember coming out here and like licking my face? And they're like, no, I don't have a clue. But he would come out and he'd be freaked out of his mind, right? He, was, he looked like he was talking to me and understanding, uh, and, and yet the, nothing was there. It's like presidents. Anyway, so you look like, come on, it's just a joke, right? So anyway, so you're looking at, and he, he'd come out, and sometimes we'd have guests over, right? And we'd be just sitting there, and he'd come out, and he'd run across the room, and they're like, oh my gosh, was that your son? Yeah. You know, <laughs> shouldn't you do something? Nah, he'll be fine. It's like... You had to grab him and you'd have to hold on to him and eventually, you, but you learn as you go along, right? But because we had these two challenges with our first two kids in terms of sleeping, by the time the third one came around, my little Sophie, you know, six years later, I don't know if we were just tired or we were just like, whatever, it doesn't even matter. If my daughter would drop, she'd just drop on the floor and I'd look to my wife and say, is that good? Yep, that'll be fine, right? <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. That's what you do, right? When you have your third child, those of you who've got several children, the third child is the one that, that is honestly has broken limbs and their eyes are gouged out because you're like, I don't, whatever. Is that a chainsaw? I don't know. Is it on? Who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's something that happens as you experience difficult things and then you experience them again and you realize that in each difficult thing, it worked out. By the time you get to more difficult things in the future, you're just not as stressed out about it. It's just not that big of a deal. Why don't we worry with the later kids? Well, to put it simply, we remember that what's happened will happen. What's happened will happen. Meaning, meaning we, made through, we made it through before. That's, what ha- that's what's happened. And we will make it through again. That's what will happen. So we don't freak out about it. My wife and I were dropping my son off, actually my second son, and we started thinking about a lot of these things. We were dropping off at college um, a couple weeks ago, and you know, you start thinking about your children, and there are these moments in their lives where you, know, you take a pause and you think about how they were and all these things. And we were, we were thinking about about him and all the different places that uh, we've had to move, how many places that he's had to go and, and become a new person. So, so we weren't as worried, right, because he goes to college. He's had to do this before. But we've moved into other countries, into other, like, and in each occasion, we've left behind a ton of friends. We've gotten there. Sometimes we don't know anybody. Flown across oceans, showed up at the shores, go and stay in people's houses that we don't know eat foods that we don't understand. And eventually, you miss people, but eventually the Lord provides the same kinds of brothers and sisterly friends that you had before. So when we moved here a year ago, there were people who would ask us, oh, that must be really hard for you to move from you know, somewhere like you know, British Columbia to here to Chicago. And yeah, it is hard, but it's not as hard for us as it might be for some other people because we've had to do it over and over again. And in each occasion, we've seen how God has taken care of us. But there is a period of great heartache and challenge, but God has always taken care of us all along the way at each stage. In fact, I could say, even now, if I'm freaked out and saying, oh my word, how is this ever going to work out in this new location? Not that I'd ever do that in Chicago, ever, right? But if, it, if I did say that, I know deep in my heart, it's going to work out because what's happened will happen. As a follower of Jesus, what's happened will happen. And that's what this psalm is about. Psalm 126 is about how Christians can handle anxiety and sadness in a fallen world. Like, what do you do when you're facing difficult moment? What are you supposed to be thinking about that's meant to encourage you to keep going in this moment? And this psalm is pretty simple. 
It's basically the psalmist saying, okay, you got to do two things in this difficult moment. And by the way, everybody's got a distressing, difficult moment, yeah? There's nobody who's walked through the doors of the church today and are sitting down and listening to me right now, I don't care where you are, who does not have a thing that is distressing them. It's like the background noise in every thought that you have. You might not always be conscious of it or aware of it, but when things get really quiet and somebody starts playing the piano and you start getting reflective, that distressing thing is the first thing in your mind. What do you do with that? How do you live facing these distressing moments as a follower of Jesus, knowing that he loves you and cares for you? What do you do to deal with those moments? How do you move forward? And this passage is basically explaining two things you need to do. Number one, you need to remember the victories of the past. And number two, you need to remember the joys of the future. Remember the victories of the past and remember the joys of the future. And so those are kind of the two steps that we're going to take through the passage. So let's look at the first of those. Remember the victories of the past. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I I want to stop right here because this line has a lot in it that I need to explain to you. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, what what are we talking about here? Because he's referring to something specific that you and I are probably not privy to because we don't know the history of Israel or don't reflect on it. It's not our history necessarily. So let me tell you, when he wrote this and the people of Israel were singing this song, that's what this is, it's a song of ascent, They're singing it together as a community as they go up to Jerusalem and they're going to have a festival and they're singing this. Everyone in their minds knows exactly what he's talking about with the first line. When the Lord restored the fortunes to Zion. So a little bit of history, a short history of the people of Israel in, in the Bible. So God saves them from slavery in Egypt. Remember 10 plagues? Come across the Red Sea, ha-ha, Pharaoh drowns in the sea. They sing a song on the other side. They start traveling across the wilderness to get to the promised land. They get to the edge of the promised land. You know, they send in the, the 12 guys, 10 of them come back and say, there's no way we can take, the people are huge. We can't take the promised land. We shouldn't do this. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, are like, what are you talking about? Right? Man up, let's do it. But the 10 win And they turn around. God says, okay, because you guys don't believe me and didn't trust me, none of you who had an opportunity to enter the promised land, this whole generation is going to be wiped away, and it's only your children that are going to see this thing happen. So they wander around for 40 years in the desert. Lord takes care of them, right? Manna and quail and takes care of them. But they're wandering around the desert for a long time. Finally, Joshua takes over and they go into the promised land as all of those others passed away. They go into the promised land. The Lord parts the Jordan River. They go into this promised land and the Lord, when they get to the other side, they basically says, okay, so here's the deal. You will possess this land, meaning I will give you victory over all of your enemies. I'll protect you and take care of you. You will experience the blessings of this land, great blessings, land flowing with milk and honey, right in a day where they couldn't go to the Jewel Oscar. So you're going to have this great blessings in this land if you obey me. And by obey me, I mean obey my commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't, don't tie your heart to the, to the gods of the people of the land. Don't intermarry with them. Don't, don't. Because if you do, your hearts are going to be drawn away. And if your hearts are drawn away, I'm going to come and I'm going to have to take you out of the land. I'm going to have to remove you from this so that you know that I care about you and that I have actually a covenant with you and that I will actually eventually bring you back. So anyway, the people of Israel, you you know the story. They're like, yeah, we obey you. And then like two minutes later, they're like, ooh, Baal, he seems great. 
So they tie their hearts to the people of the land. They intermarry with them. And the Lord comes through prophets and said, I told you, you better repent. And they're like, ah, repent, who cares? Go away, God. We're going to build more altars to Baal and poles to Asherah, his girlfriend. And finally, the Lord's like, all right, that's it. That's it. So he brings in another nation. The Lord uses an alien nation, the Babylonians, to come in and wipe out Jerusalem. He's like, I warned you, wipe out Jerusalem. When they come in, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he comes in and he takes all of the smarty, smart people. This is a really good idea, by the way. If we want to take over Canada, this is what we do. We take like the three smart people there and we pull them out and we put them in the United States, okay? I'm Canadian, I can say that. But that's what they did. They came and they took guys like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Remember these guys? And they pulled them out and they said, you guys are the smartest people. We want you to take you back to Babylon so that we can indoctrinate you into our ways. And that way we can wipe out, not just your nation from the planet right now, but wipe out your culture completely. And so he pulls them all away. You can imagine being one of these captives going to Babylon, thinking to yourself, oh, Lord, where have you gone? We are in this horrible situation. Have you forgotten your promises to us? They're in a massive moment of distress. Oh, Lord, this is what I'm talking about. What do you do when you're facing this moment of distress where you feel like God has left? That you don't know what you're supposed, what, what you're supposed to do next. So there's this passage in Jeremiah 29. It's a passage that lots of people know. You know, know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I want to show you in context what that means. The Lord, when, when these people come to Babylon from Jerusalem, this is, this is how the Lord describes what's going to happen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we're talking about Daniel and his buddies. Notice, too, who sent them. I have sent them. Wait a minute, God. It wasn't the Babylonians who sent them. Yeah, I use Babylonians and alienations and evil people in order to accomplish my good ends. Amen? Okay, thank you. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, their temptation is going to be like, this is just going to be a short mission trip. We're going to go over to the Babylon and hang out for a little while until we learn our lesson, and then we're going to come back. The Lord's like, ah, I need you to build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, you're not tourists. You're not going to be there for just a little while. We need to take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. There'll be whole generations, in other words, that are going to be here. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. You mean the cities of Babylon? Yes, cities of Babylon, the ones that are all wicked and awful. I want you to seek their welfare. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your wealth. See, if things go well for you, that go well there, it'll go well for you. Because you're going to be there for a long time. For thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For look, it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name because they're going to come along, these prophets, and they're going to say stuff like, it's only going to be a couple more weeks, guys. Just keep going and you'll be just fine. And Lord's like, no, 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 don't listen to them. They're lying to you. It's going to be a while. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord when, how long? Seventy years are completed for Babylon. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. See, I promised that I'd give you this land and I'm not going to give up on the promise, but we're having a 70-year timeout where you get to sit in the corner, get comfortable, and learn that I alone am God. For I know, hey, right? This doesn't talk about your destiny. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. I'm not going to leave you there. I've promised something to you. In the midst of your difficulty and heartache and wondering, where's the Lord? Listen, I have plans for you, 
to give you a future and a hope. You, then you'll call upon us. When this is all over, you're going to call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will, here we go, restore your fortunes. Sound familiar? And that's from our passage. And he restored the fortunes of Zion. I'm going to restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So look, what you need to know, guys, he's saying is that even though you're in this very difficult situation in this present moment, this 70 years, I need you to remember that I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt across that. I am the God who chose you and gave you a name and call you my own. I'm not giving up on you, even though in this present distress, it's hard. There's a future. What's happened will happen. And it did. Second <laughs> Chronicles 36 See, after 70 years, this other king, Cyrus, he comes in. He's a Persian, and he beats the snot out of the Babylonians. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. This is not a Christian country, yes? It's not Israel. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. This guy, he's, a, he's like a, an unbelieving king, and he's like, you know what? I get all the kingdoms of the earth because the Jewish God, he's the one who gave it all to me. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Isn't that great? God actually takes this wicked king of Persia, and he uses him to build a, he, to build a, a, a temple in Jerusalem. They get it free, in other words, right? We can get other countries to build stuff for us. Wouldn't that be cool? Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So he frees the exiles. He shows up and he's like, all you guys who are from Jerusalem, it's time to go home. You can imagine the joy on the hearts and the faces of the people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach. Like, like the, the, the joy of people like them going back after all these promises and they see God fulfill what he said. So even though they faced all this massive distress, where are you, God? He came through in the end. So... That is a long way of saying that when they say, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, the 70 years of distress in the middle, God coming through for them. When he restored the fortunes of Zion, how did they feel when they were coming back as exiles? We were like those who dream. It was so good, it was like a dream. Pinch me, I'm dreaming. Then our mouth, it was filled with laughter. I mean, we were moaning before, but now, now our mouths were filled with laughter instead of moaning and our tongue with shouts of joy. I mean, not little like, yay, like, ah! like, come on. I'm the only person. Anyway, then they said among the, then they said, who's they? They said among the nations, well, the other nations, the people who were looking on and watching what was happening in all the other nations, they said, the Lord has done great things for them. <laughs> when I read this, I, I remember when I was um, dating my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, during a, a Christmas break at one point when we were in college, which is where I met her, she was actually on the other side of the state of Washington. In Washington state, one side of it is rainy and cloudy all the time, and the other side is actually quite nice, but in the wintertime, it snows like crazy. She was on the snowy side, I was on the rainy side, and I was supposed to go across to the snowy side, six-hour drive, in order to meet her for a wedding that was happening at her church over there. And so I get in the car, I start driving. I didn't look at the weather, because why do you? You know, I'm 19, who cares? I go across and all of a sudden it starts snowing. And by snowing, I mean like Midwest snowing. Like, holy smokes, what's happening here? Snow, snow, snow is piling up on the side of the road. And then all of a sudden I keep coming across these like police checkpoints. And the police are saying to me, you roll your window down, the snow's coming in. And the police is saying to you, uh, we're closing the county. 
you're the last person through. So you can stop if you want, but right behind you, we're closing. You can keep going, but you just need to know that we're closing it down right after you. You know, 19-year-old, 50-year-old Jeff's like, I'm fine in the next hotel. 19-year-old Jeff, Jeff is like, whatever, you know? So I kept, just kept going. I found this massive truck in front of me, and I ended up just riding right behind this massive truck who was plowing through the snow, and I would just ride behind him forever and ever and ever. He knew I was there. We were buddies, me and him. 10-4, good buddy. And at every county line, there was another cop there saying, it's closed, it's closed, it's closed. See, on the other end, without me knowing, Jeannie was with her family and they were waiting for the groom to arrive for the, for the rehearsal dinner. And they were hearing from the groom that, oh my gosh, it's so horrible, they're shutting down the whole state. And she knew that I was coming, but we don't, you know, no cell phones or anything. And so she thought for sure I was stranded on the side of the road. Anyway, I eventually make it six hours all the way across. I think it took like nine, ten hours. I finally come across and I go to the church, and they're still meeting in there, having their rehearsal dinner. The groom's not there. They're looking out the windows, waiting for the groom. I walk in. I break open the doors, you know, double doors. You know, here I am. Everyone turns and goes, oh, because, you know, I'm not the groom. But not, not everybody went, oh. By the way, I've gotten used to that a lot. You know, I break in, hey. Uh. Not everybody did that. There was young, one young woman named Jeannie who didn't go, oh, but went, oh, <laughs> well, well. And, and so I went over and I gave her a hug. Her parents were there, so just a hug, you know. And then the ladies around afterwards kept coming up and they'd say, this is so, so wonderful that you did that. Honey, honey, Harold, Harold, come here. Isn't it so beautiful that this young man, he drove all this time through snow and horrible th- Weather to get to his dear beloved. Harold's like, yeah. <laughs> Why don't you do that, Harold? I hate you, he says to me, <laughs> right, you know? But that's, that's what we're talking about here. Like, okay, so God will come through for you. He will burst through the doors and he will have delivered you and all the nations will stand around and they will say, ooh, that's amazing. Look, look at the love that their God has for them. I don't have a God like that. I wish I had a God like that. The Lord has done great things for them. And then the psalmist is like, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. Look, here's, here's the point in this whole first part. Amid present distress, when we wonder how it's going to turn out, We have to remember the victories of the past. The people of Israel, when he's writing this, are in a present distress. We don't know what the distress is, but they're in a moment. And the psalmist is like, you guys remember though? Do you remember when the people of Israel, just like us, were there in the middle of those 70 years and God had promised to take care of us? And he did. He came through and we said shouts of joy. Do you remember that? You've got to remember the past. Man, you've got to remember what the Lord has done for you. I know the clouds are descending and you feel like you're stuck in this moment and the rain is falling in your life, but you got to remember, you got to lift yourself like a plane up above the clouds and say, yes, but I remember when God came through before and he blew the winds of his spirit and the clouds dissipated. I remember he's done it. He can do it again. This idea of remembering is all over the Bible. In fact, it seems to be something the Lord really, really wants us to take to heart. So, remember when I told you they came across the, the, the Jordan River with Joshua? Remember that? When they did, here's what happened. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, before you guys move on, I know you want to get at it and get into that promised land, but before we do, we, get, we have to take a moment. I want you to take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man. And I want you to command them. Saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and, buy, and lay them 
down in the place where you lodge tonight. So in other words, listen, you're going to come across the Jordan. It's all backed up. Before you move on, what I need you to do is take one person from each tribe, and I need you to go down there, and they're going to grab a boulder or a big rock, and they're going to put it on their shoulder, and they're going to carry it back out. And I want you to put it down on the ground, on, the other, on, on our side of the Jordan now, on the promised land. I need you to put it down on the ground. So Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, and a man from each tribe And Joshua said to them, okay, I need you to pass before the ark of the Lord. It's a sign of his presence. I want you to walk before the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan and take up a stone, each of you upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may, why? That this may be a sign among you. You're going to pick these boulders up, put them on your shoulder. You're going to walk out. You're going to place them on the ground. You're going to form I don't know, a pyramid, an arrow, this way to the promised land, a big heart, I don't know, but something there. These big stones are going to form something there that it may be a sign among you. And when your children in years to come, when you're facing difficult situations in years to come, you're going to come back by here with your kids like you and I go to, you know, the Grand Canyon or we go and we see the presidents in that place in South Dakota. I don't even remember what it's called. It's not worth going. Anyway, when, it's not, it's kind of boring. When your children come, what do these stones mean to you? And you shall tell them, I'll tell you kids, this is when the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. You see, kids, you see, kids, this is where God came through. Will he do it again, Dad? Yes, he did it. He did it then. He can do it. What's happened can happen. When the people of Israel are being delivered from, prior to this, being delivered from, from the land of Egypt, the last plague, ten plagues, the last plague, is the plague on the firstborn. So the angel of death is going to come around. It's going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. And the only way out of it is if you apply the blood of a lamb to the doorposts of your home. And then the Lord will pass over your home because you've expressed faith saying, I believe. I believe in the Lord who will save us. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Exodus 12. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. But this day, this moment, this Passover moment shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast I want you every single year to remember Israel of what happened here that when you were in your darkest most dire moment I the Lord came and delivered you So every year you're going to go through some symbolic practices that show that this is what I can do. Because you know what? The years are going to go by and you are going to be feeling like you're facing the most hard times, these present distresses. And you need to know in those moments when you celebrate this festival that what the Lord did before, he can do again. Got to remember people. You got to remember This is what, listen, if if you're a coach of your team, you know, and your team's down by 40 at halftime. You know, and you go in there and you're like, come on, kids, none of you can make a basket. You all stink. But do you remember, kids, do you remember? They're all downcast and they're like, it's his fault, it's his fault, he won't pass. Do you remember earlier in the year when we were really horrible and we were down by 42 and we only lost by 40? No, we were down by 42 when we came all the way back. Do you remember that, kids? Yes, remember. We can do it again, right? We can do it. Ah! They go outside and they lose, you know, of course, by 35. And then, ah! But isn't that what you say to people in the midst of a trying circumstance when they're downcast? Isn't that what you say? 
It's happened before. It can happen again. You ever been praying and praying, praying for something like a miraculous prayer? Lord, would you, would you deliver me from this? Would you save my kids? Would you, you know, care for my body? Lord, would you, would you, would you, would you? And it just looks around you like there's no hope. There's nothing pointing to deliverance. How do you keep going? And the answer is you think, yes, but there was a time in days gone by when out of nowhere, when it didn't look like the Lord could do anything, that he did it. Every Christian who's lived any length of time has those moments. I know you do because I know the Lord. It didn't turn out like you planned it. It it, it didn't go according to the script, but what a script it went according to. I remember it. Do you remember? I know the moment's hard. I know. I know the distress is hard. You've got to remember where you've been. You know, you're still his child. Yeah, you might be there for 70 years. I get it. It might feel like a long time. But you're still his child. He has plans for you. Nice to prosper, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. He didn't change his mind about what choosing you. He gave you his son Jesus, for goodness sake. Won't he also with him give you all things? Well, it doesn't look like it. I know. But think about all the people who sat in your seat before and it didn't look like it. And then the Lord did what he said he would. You got to remember the victories of the past. You also, though, need to remember the joys of the future. It's interesting, this passage basically is trying to say, kind of like, you need to get yourself out of this moment. You can't get stuck in this moment. You got to get yourself out of this moment for a minute. Lift yourself up above the clouds and be able to have a good perspective on things. Remember the victories of the past and then remember the joys of the future. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Remember at the first verse, he, he said, when, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so he remembers of that time, and then he shifts in the middle of the Psalms to say, do it again, right? Do it again. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Like streams in, in, in the Negev. Negev is like an arid uh, desert-like area south of, of, of Jerusalem. And uh, it's like Arizona, if you've been, been there. And if you've been to Arizona, occasionally they'll have these massive downpours. And when they have these massive downpours, like the next day, everything that was really brown is all of a sudden green. It's like it was just laying there in wait to, to come alive. That's what he's saying. Lord, if you show up, which you said you would, if you restore our fortunes, all of the desolate land around us, all of my life that looks like it's so dry and parched, in a moment could come alive. Do it, Lord. Show up, Lord. Th- those who sow in tears shall reap with Shouts of joy. This is such an interesting phrase. You've got to picture this because essentially what he's saying is, look, if you live in an arid desert-like region and there's a drought or whatever, if you're a farmer there, what you're doing is you're walking out your door to a ground that has no water in it. There's no evidence anywhere that what you're about to sow, you know, the seed will grow up into a harvest. There's none So you take your little bag, you till the ground, there's no water, it's just dust everywhere, and you take your seed, and in tears, you you throw the seed on the ground. The reason you're in tears is you're like, oh God, is this ever going to turn out? There's There's no hope. It's been so long for the rain to fall, and here I am just going forward, and I'm just throwing the seed. Can I pause really quickly here? You know, there are some people who raise questions about what, what do you do? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? I just really need you to know that to wait on the Lord is not for you to sit down on your couch and cross your arms and go, show up, Lord. Bring the lightning. To wait on the Lord is to keep doing the next right thing. To be acting in faith, 
that the Lord will come through to be doing the things that he calls us to do, even though we feel like it might not come to fruition. I had one of the hardest moments of my life when I was in college. It was the first time I ever dealt with significant depression. But I had grown, you know, when I came to faith in Christ in the Christian community, uh, the evangelically world to me was um, very exciting, you know, because everybody kept talking about all these feelings that they had for Jesus. And I did. You know, you go sing the songs and the worship, and you go to these locations where the speaker talks, and you're just like, oh, this is so great. And you get these warm fuzzies all through your body, you know. This is amazing, Lord. But most of my Christian life in the early stages was built on that kind of like hype injection of, you know, thrill. I was a camp Christian. Show up to camp every year. Ah, I love Jesus. And then kind of fades away. So I would go to each one of these conferences and stuff and get this excitement. But when I got to college, for some reason, all, I'd go to the events and the feelings weren't there anymore. They just, they just went away. I remember laying on the floor of my college dorm room praying to the Lord, and it was, I just felt like all the prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling and coming right back, and I would say to the Lord, I know you're there. I just don't know why I can't feel that you're there. You say there's joy, but where is it? And I went through this for about 18 months or so. I finally went and talked to a dear friend of mine, a mentor and a pastor, and I sat down and I talked to him, and I said, what am I supposed to do in this moment? Does it mean that God doesn't love me? Is it... And he, he smiled and he said, you're going through a spiritual desert. I said, well, what am I supposed to do in the desert? And he's like, keep sowing. You, Jeff, you need to do the next right thing. God's not expecting you to figure out the deliverance schedule. He's not trying to figure, you, you, your job is to do the next right thing. There's so many of us in the room who are facing these distresses and we're like, I just don't know what to do here. The answer is you need to do the next right thing. Well, what do you mean by doing the next right thing? Okay, well, if you don't have a job and you're facing a difficulty or your job is really hard, keep looking for another job. Keep sending your resume out. But in the meantime, work your tail off where you are. What does God want you to do there? To work your tail off there. Yeah, but it's so hard. Just keep doing it, man. Keep, just throw that seed out the soil. It's so dry. Yep, just throw it. But my kids, you know, they're wayward, and I, I pray, and there's no answer, and it just feels like we prayed for so many years. What am I supposed to do with these wayward children? Well, you keep loving them, right? You keep seeking them, like the father of the prodigal son who scans the horizon waiting for his children to come home. Keep pursuing, keep pursuing, and keep praying. Stand there, throw the seed out, and just wait that the Lord will do it. He will use your energy, your prayer, your diligence, your scanning the horizon to bring about the end. When? I don't know. But act in faith that he will. There are people I know who are in abusive relationships and they're like, what do I do? I'm scared to leave. And the answer to the question is you do the next right thing. What's the next right thing? Get safe. But if I get safe and I leave, what will happen? I don't know. But you know what? You need to throw the seed in faith and you need to do the next right thing. What's your next right thing? What is it? What's the next right thing? You have a distress. Let that background noise lift for just a minute. Listen to it for a minute and say, what's the next right thing in that? Yeah, I know it's a desert. Just keep, keep sowing. Here's the thing I really wanted to show, show you here, though, okay? This guy, he's sowing in tears. But <laughs> notice the language of the passage. And this is really where I really get to here as we end the guy who sows in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Listen, not might, not here's open. <laughs> shall, it will, it will happen. So psalmist is basically saying, listen, 
You can completely 100% bank on the Lord because the Lord is completely 100% always come through. There's never been a moment that the Lord hasn't come through and there'll never be a moment that he won't come through. Even in the moment, it looks like it's all dry and barren. The Lord will bring streams in the negative. He will deliver you from the problems. And yes, in this passage, look, there's a point toward eternity, but there's also a point toward the present time. Let's think about the eternity one first though, right? So Paul, when he talks about this very idea that there is a point, there's a moment coming very soon where the Lord will deliver all of us from the heartache and pain and tears. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. You're, you're suffering in this present time, even though it feels like it's so mountainous. It's not. It's this little tiny hill in your backyard. And the glory that's to be revealed is Mount Everesty. You don't go and say to yourself, well, let me compare Mount Everest to this little hill in the backyard. No, you don't. They're not comparable. And the blessings and the glory that the Lord has prepared for you and all who love him and long for his appearing, all of that is mountainous, inestimable. Second Corinthians 4, Paul again. So we don't lose heart. In the middle of the deserts and the difficulty and the heartache of this life, we don't lose heart. I, our outer self is wasting away, yes, but our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Little. It feels really big, but you don't, in comparison to what's coming, it's light, it's momentary, and it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look, we... We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. They just, like a mist, they come and they go. But the things that are unseen, these blessings, the glory of eternal bliss with God, they're forever. Look, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. It's like the second one. And there's a scene where they're at Helm's Deep and they're being oppressed by all the orcs and terrible guys who are coming in. And they've lost, basically. The great fortress is being, you know, assaulted and they're going to lose. And the front door gets broken down and they decide we're going to ride out in faith. I love this scene. We're going to ride out in faith. Will we die? Probably. But we're going to throw that seed up there. We're going to ride out in faith. And they ride out in faith. And in the middle, they start getting beat up. And right in the middle, there's this moment in the, in the story where it pans to the hillside. And Gandalf the White shows up at the top. Glorious, beaming light. And with him are the hordes of joy and deliverance and they come streaming down the hill and he just decimates all of it. Whoa, come on, Jesus, right? There's a day coming where the, the king of heaven will come upon the hill and all of the sorrows and heartache will be dissipated in his glorious light and darkness will flee and you and I will, will go down on our knees and we will give glory to God. And it's coming, listen to me, it is, it's coming, it shall come. And I know that for people like us, look, I know that in the present moment, it's difficult to think, yeah, yeah, okay, in heaven this is going to be better. But listen, even now, even now, there's a promise like this. JT last week, he actually talked about Psalm 27, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It has it borne me up in so much difficulty in my life. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That this God who has done so many things for me in ages past will do it again. I know he will. So I wait. Not crossing my arms on the couch. Come on, God. I wait actively for the Lord I'm strong. Be strong. Let, let your heart take courage. We're Christian people. We have a glorious future. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Well, let me finish with this. Um, you, have you ever used the phrase with people, hey, don't worry. Tomorrow's another day. The sun will rise. 
So, you know, your kids are struggling with a particular thing. It's late at night, 10 p.m., and they're, they're feeling inside like it looks outside, darkness. And you, you put your arm around them and you say, honey, it's late. Tomorrow is another day. The sun will rise. The sun will rise. You say this to your friends when they're in tears over whatever distress has been plaguing them. Listen, tomorrow is another day. The dawn is coming. Have you ever noticed that when we say that, we say it with such surety? We're like, look, the sun will rise. The sun will rise. If your friend in that moment responded by saying, how do you know? He'd be like, oh, give me a break. How do I know? Because it always does. It like has a 100% record. It batting a 1,000. The sun is batting a 1,000. So I can say this with surety and I can tell you that it will come. And because it will come, you don't need to fret in the present moment because it will happen. Listen to me. We say that and we guarantee it because it's always happened. You know what else has always happened? The Lord has come through for you every time. He's batting a thousand over your distresses. So you and I, we should speak about the promises of God that this shall happen. We should sound like the psalmist in the same way we, we say things like the sun will rise. It's the same guarantee. It will happen. And your mouth will be filled with laughter. And you will go forth with shouts of joy. We don't need to be afraid of the night. God will bring the morning like he always has. What's happened will happen. So wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and your goodness and for a passage that calls us to remember what you've done in the past and what you have guaranteed to do in the future. Lord, would you, would you help spirit? Would you come and would you buoy our hearts up with this news? We are so regularly getting stuck in the moment, Father, feeling under the clouds of despair. Would, you, would the spirit come and blow the clouds away and give us a peek at the sun? Help us to experience what you said you've promised. Do it again, Lord. For your glory, Father. Do it again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Thanks for joining us for our study of six of the Psalms of Ascent from the Old Testament. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and get ready to open God's Word together.